Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. People often will ask me, so what's the best way to talk? And what's best in one situation may not be the best in the other. But it's always best to be aware of all these phenomena, all these parameters that affect conversational style so that you can ask, if I'm not having the effect I want, how could I have talked differently to have different effect? When you get an impression of what somebody else means, you could stop and ask yourself, could I be getting the wrong impression? Could they have a different conversational style. You're listening to Dr. Deborah Tannen on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We're thrilled to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education here at Psychologists Off the Clock because we really value our own continuing education. And I know, Jill, you've participated in a number of Praxis events. I have. Praxis is my favorite. I think probably the most memorable was when I participated in an ACT boot camp after I'd already been learning and doing ACT for about 15 years. And I still got so much out of the training. I have a memory of Steve Hayes jumping off of a phone book to demonstrate how small your committed action can be. And sometimes I'll bring up that memory and use it with my clients. And that's probably from 10 years ago. The Praxis also continues to evolve and change over time. It integrates new therapies as they come out. It has trainings in compassion-focused therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy and radically open DBT. If you go to our website at offtheclockpsych.com and visit our sponsorship page, you can get a coupon for $25 off. So we all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot POTC, ZocDoc.com POTC. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. Check it out. We're also affiliates with Dr. Rick Hansen's online neurodharma program and his Foundations of Wellbeing programs. And you can find out more about them at our website, offtheclockpsych.com, where you'll get a $40 discount. 
So I'm here today with Yael to introduce this episode with Dr. Deborah Tannen. And I found the information in this episode really fascinating because what Dr. Tannen talks about is conversational style and how we often have misunderstandings when we have a mismatch in the way we talk about things. So for example, she talks a lot in the episode about directness versus indirectness. And sometimes we think we're being direct when really we're being indirect and vice versa. And what I came away from this with is needing to have a keener ear and noticing when the people that we're talking to might have a different conversational style and that when we notice there's a mismatch, it might allow us to work around misunderstandings. But Yael, I was excited to do this intro with you, given that you're a couples therapist and I am not a couples therapist. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts in terms of you know what we can learn from this episode and how we can really apply this knowledge? Yeah, as, as I was listening to the episode, it just really struck me how relevant so many of these messages are for the kind of couples work that I do, because one of the core messages really is to gain flexibility and awareness of what conversational style works best in a given circumstance. And so I think this question of, you know, how does it come up in couples therapy? And then what are tools that couples might take away from couples therapy is, is one that most listeners might benefit from. So for example, I often have partners that miscommunicate a lot without understanding why. And so part of the couple's work is to figure out where the misunderstanding comes from. So one of the culturally familiar examples of different ways that people talk and express love is this idea of love languages. This comes from Gary Chapman's work, and he offers five different love languages that people sort of have primacy in. So I may be more likely to communicate my care for somebody through words and and my partner may be more likely to express their care for me through gift giving. Those are two of the love languages. And so if you can kind of figure out your style of language and then your partner's style of language, then it becomes a little bit easier to figure out where the flexibility needs to come in. And so just to carry this metaphor a little bit further, what I often explain to couples is that you can think about your own love language as your primary language. So say I know that my primary language is English. It was the first language I ever spoke. It's the language I'm really fluent in. And you can think of your partner's primary love language as as a different language entirely. So for example, that their primary language is French. Now you would never expect somebody who was raised in France and who had for the majority of their life spoken exclusively in French to all of a sudden be perfectly fluent in English. And so when we think about flexibility in that way, the expectations shift. So we might expect that our partner gains some language and some ability to have conversation in our language, English, and that we might try to learn some of their language to be conversant in French. But we're never going to expect ourselves or our partner to speak fluently in the language that wasn't primarily theirs. And so if you can develop some flexibility around your expectations and also develop a willingness to sort of meet your partner halfway, then you can have a more effective conversation. So those are some of the ways that I offer the differences in in how to think about conversational style to couples. One other thing that she talks a bit about is that there can be changes that we make in speaking, but that there can also be changes in how we listen to one another. And this is also something that comes up a lot in couples therapy, because often both partners are really longing to have somebody hear them. And so they're, they're kind of speaking as loud as they can, as often as they can, and still feeling like the other person isn't getting it. And I think what often happens there is that there's this cultural imperative, I think, of, of speaking. And, and what she brings up is that that's not true cross-culturally, that in some other cultures, listening is much more emphasized. And when we listen better, we can hear more deeply, and, and then we can actually end up having a more effective turn at speaking, right? If we really hear our partner and, and we let them know that we heard them, it's much more likely that they're going to then give us a turn to speak. And so I talk a lot with couples about how important it is to listen and listen well. And one of the tools that um, we go over and over, and this could be kind of annoying for couples because I do broken record this, is the u- utility of reflective listening. And what that is, is summarizing what it is that you heard. So 
therapists do this all the time. So what I'm, so what I thought I heard there was, and you kind of do just a real brief summary of what it is that you think the main message is. And the great news is if you get it right, then the speaker feels really good. You got them, you understood. And if you didn't get it right, then the speaker has a chance to correct you. Yeah. So it really builds the rapport, which has to be a better state from which to have a conversation, especially if it's a difficult conversation. And I love the speaking French example. Like that just hit me. It made it make so much sense to me. And I noticed having this like immediate sense of greater empathy for my partner. And when you talk about speaking versus listening, I immediately, (laughs) I immediately flashed to the scene in Pulp Fiction, the movie where Vincent Vega and Mrs. Mia Wallace are out on a date. And she asks him, I might be paraphrasing here, but she says, do you listen or do you wait to speak? And he says, I'd like to say I listen, but really I wait to speak. And I think that was such a universal moment where we all kind of go, Oh, shoot, me too. And that part of that comes from, you know, like some anxiety, especially if you're having a difficult conversation or if you feel like you want to prove your point and you want to be right. When really the best thing we can do is just kind of like open up and receive what the other person is saying. And you're setting the stage for a much more potentially much more productive conversation is is that's what I'm hearing you say, Yael. Did I get that right? <laughs> you did, and it feels so good. The other, <laughs> point, the other point that I'll just make, which which I think is sort of consistent with the, the value of listening, is just the value of slowing down. And I think mm. we are so in a rush to, to hear, to, to speak, to get things solved, that we value efficiency over effectiveness. And What's ironic about that is sometimes when we're really, really efficient and we're really ineffective, ultimately we're not that efficient because we've got to right. sort of come back and redo it. And in your conversation with Dr. Tannen, you also talk about this sort of the, the importance of slowing down problem solving in order to increase effectiveness. And that is something that I talk a lot about that sometimes a part of why we're so in a rush to speak is that we think we have the answer or the fix or, or we already understand But when we don't slow down to just be curious, we often don't give ourselves a chance to understand more deeply. And that is ultimately and most often going to be what's most effective. And I'll Mm -hmm. say that even knowing that I have a hard time slowing down. And so that's one of the things that I'm constantly working on is to slow down, to listen more, to be more patient. And it's, it's hard work. But when I'm successful, I notice I'm much more effective. Well, I think this is a really cool call to action for listeners. We're all still, you know, stuck at home a lot in a pandemic with the same people. It's a lot of together time. So maybe we can all take this next week or two and practice slowing down and listening and see what kind of impact that has on our everyday conversations. So enjoy this episode with Dr. Deborah Tannen. Dr. Deborah Tannen is university professor and a professor of linguistics at Georgetown University and the author of many books and articles about how the language of everyday conversation affects relationships. She is best known as the author of You Just Don't Understand, Women and Men in Conversation, which was on the New York Times bestseller list for nearly four years, including eight months as number one and has been translated into 31 languages. Her other books have won many awards and several have spent time on the New York Times bestseller list, including You Were Always Mom's Favorite, Sisters in Conversation Throughout Their Lives, You're Wearing That, Understanding Mothers and Daughters in Conversation, and Talking from Nine to Five, Women and Men at Work. Dr. Tannen has been a frequent guest on television and radio news and information shows, including The Colbert Report, 2020, Good Morning America, The Today Show, The Rachel Ray Show, PBS NewsHour, Oprah, Hardball, and Nightline. Welcome, Dr. Tannen. Thank you so much 
for being here. You have done so much. I don't even know where to begin, but first I'd like to congratulate you on your recent memoir, which I'd like to talk about at the end of our interview. But the the way that I came to reach out to you actually is that I'm slowly working on a memoir of my own. And in doing the research for that to make sense of some experiences related to gender and power, apologies, guilt, conflict, criticism, assertiveness, everywhere I turned, I came across you. And I found it all just so incredibly fascinating. And so I thought, hmm, why not see if I can have a conversation directly with Dr. Tannen that others might benefit too. So since you are an expert in all things communication, maybe we can start with how this is most relevant with everything that we have going on today. I mean, you know, between the pandemic and the election and the racial justice movement, there's certainly no shortage of places that we can go. But I thought maybe we could start with communication at home. Thank you. Thank you for that lovely introduction and for mentioning my memoir, which, yes, I'm very excited about, so different from everything else I've written. My own work is about ways of speaking. The huge difference is that now everybody's home all the time. So if you have certain frustrations with your partner or whoever you're living with, your kids, your parents, that if if you worked you got out of the house and you were in a different environment. And it's been fascinating that some research, including the work of Arlie Hochschild, she would be a great person for you to talk to if you could, that many women looked forward to going to work. They found that easier to manage than their lives at home, that the second shift at home was more challenging than the first shift at work. So because couples are home all the time, parents and children are home all the time, siblings are home all the time, the kinds of frustrations that were common across genders, across ages, just across different conversational styles, that's going to be amplified now. So let me just say a little bit about what I mean when I say conversational style. When I first wrote, the first book that I wrote for general audiences rather than academic audiences was a book called That's Not What I Meant. And when I was interviewed on that book, people would often say to me, well, wouldn't this be a better world if people just said what they meant? And my comment at the time was, we do say what we mean, but we say it in our own conversational style. If you talk to someone whose conversational style is relatively similar, chances are you're going to understand what they mean. They're going to understand what you mean. And you may have some problems, but it's not going to be endemic. When you talk to someone whose conversational style is relatively different, then you assume they would mean what you would mean if you said the same thing in the same context. And if the conversational style is different, they don't. So some examples that frequently caused issues between women and men include what I call indirectness. So I'll just give you an example of that because it's kind of an emblematic example of how you draw conclusions that are based on how you would have meant it and it may not be accurate for how the other person meant it. So this was a real example. Somebody told me uh, he was driving along with his wife. They were coming home from somewhere. And she said, "Um, are you thirsty, dear? Would you like to stop for a drink? And he wasn't. So he said no. And then it turned out that she was kind of frustrated because she had wanted to stop for a drink. And his feeling was, and he said to me, why does she play games with me? Why didn't she just tell me that she wanted to stop? And I said, I'm pretty sure it wasn't that she wanted you to stop and you didn't. She probably wanted a different conversation. So when she asked, are you thirsty? Would you like to stop for a drink? She probably did not expect a yes, no answer. She probably expected something more like, "Um, I don't know. How do you feel about it? And then she could say, well, I don't know. How do you feel about it? (laughs) And then they could talk about how they both felt about it and make a decision, taking everybody's preferences into account. And that's what's key in everything I write about. I talk about message and meta-message. So the message is the meaning of the words. The meta-message is what it says about the relationship. 
that you're saying these words in this way at this time. So when she started by saying, asking him, did he want to stop for a drink, rather than simply stating her preference, the meta message is she was taking his preferences into account. And when he answered no, (laughs) the meta message from her point of view was, I don't care what you want. (laughs) I'm just going to tell you what I want. And that's what we're going to do. And so that often leads to later frustration. And so I'm have heard about a conversation that goes something like, why didn't you tell me? Well, you, we always do what you want anyway. You never listen to what I want. And I think it's as frustrating to him as it is to her. A way to look at these conversation style differences is if you have a decision to make, you could start vague and find out, work away uh, to a decision by finding out where everybody stands on it. Or you could start specific and work your way out which assumes you're edging toward a decision that the other one is not happy with, they'll tell you. And interestingly, this actually happens in the workplace as well. The book I wrote about women and men at work, it was called Talking from Nine to Five. I actually encountered a manager who told me when he has a decision to make, he makes a decision, he announces it, and he assumes if anybody isn't happy with it, they'll tell him. That's kind of similar to making a decision about what restaurant to go to. I'll tell you the restaurant I want, and I assume if you don't like it, you'll tell me. That will work for some people, but not others. And I'm sure that the manager who told me that, who happened to be a guy, he would have done that. So he assumes others would also do it. And I'm sure that there are many who work for him who would feel like the wife felt when she said, are you thirsty? You want to stop for a drink? And he said, no, that that's the end of the discussion. That there are many people, I'm sure, who worked for this manager who felt he made his decision. It's a done deal. He doesn't care what we want. And he's also in a position of power. Oh, absolutely. So the degree to which someone will speak up if they perceive themselves in a power position or a one down position. I think there was an article I came across, correct me if the details of this are wrong, but where you talked about a research study looking at pilots and co-pilots and the amount of time that they would spend speaking, depending on whether they saw themselves in the power position or non-power position. So what you're talking about gets so complicated because we have this intersection of gender and what happens culturally and societally in terms of the way girls versus boys are raised in terms of the ways one ought to speak. And for girls, if they are too direct um, or they talk, quote unquote, if they talk too much or more than boys, there's a true likability penalty. You know, there are consequences to that, which you talk a lot about. And then there's this intersection of gender with status and power and the way those things interact with one another. Yes. Every statement you just made made me think I want to make a little hour-long lecture on each aspect of it. So let me see how many I can hit briefly. First of all, the workplace, the airline pilots, that was fascinating. I'm so glad you pointed that out. This was uh, research done by other linguists where they actually listened to the black box recordings preceding accidents and discovered that often the co-pilot foresaw the problem and tried to tell the pilot, but tried to tell them indirectly. The pilot ignored it. Charlotte Lindy is one person who who, uh, worked on this for NASA, and they, apparently based on her insight, decided to train co-pilots to be more direct. We read this article in a seminar I was teaching at Georgetown, and I had a student in the class, these were grad students, from Japan. And he thought that that was a peculiar way to go about correcting for this. Why don't they train their pilots to listen for indirectness? (laughs) And I love that because it is definitely a bias of kind of mainstream American discourse that directness is good and indirectness is bad. And people often will say things that I have come across statements, if so-and-so had been more direct, then the outcome would have been better. And and you know, sometimes directness even means honesty to Americans. But many Asian cultures, certainly Japanese, is very much an example of this. Indirectness is the norm. The best communication is where people understand each other with nothing being said directly. Mm-hmm. So a tiny example of that 
Many years ago, when Bill Clinton was president, he made some kind of reference to the fact that he said it as a fact that often when Japanese say yes, they mean no. And the then uh, prime minister premier of, of Japan was very upset by that. And he said that that was completely untrue. He, it was offensive. And at that point, I had a Japanese uh, grad student. She was, again, PhD student. And I said, but it is true. We know that. There's an article by a Japanese linguist that's called 18 Ways of Saying No in Japanese, and not one of them was no. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, so why was he taking offense? And she said, because we are saying no. When we say those things, we are saying no. Right. <laughs> and that is so revealing. It is so significant. And this happens with conversations among Americans of different ethnic backgrounds, regional backgrounds, and often gender. Um, so, so often, let me give you another, just a couple of examples again about this indirectness in gender and uh, how it comes in the workplace. So I was the speaker at a conference uh, and happened to be a conference for women in, in, in professional life. So the speakers were all women, the attendees were all women. Uh, and I was one of the speakers. And when I arrived, the conference organizers said that another speaker, one who we both knew, was not going to make it. And she said, Judy called me this morning and she said, I'm coming down with something. I have a, I have a slight fever and feeling horrible. But if you need me to come and give my paper, of course, I'll do it. And she told the organizer said to me, and I told her, I need you to stay home and take care of yourself. And I said, I love that. That is wonderful. Can I use that in my talk? Because I was going to talk about indirectness. And she said, yes, of course. It was an example of great direct communication. <laughs> she thought it was direct. Wow. Then it became an even better example to use. That's exactly yeah. an even better example. Thank you. Exactly the kind of thing that this Japanese student of mine commented about when we we hear ourselves as saying no. She it was completely self-evident that when Judy said, I'm sick, but if you need me to come and give my talk, I will, she knew her friend wasn't gonna say, I don't care if you're sick, you come and give that paper. So it was just an agreement to say she couldn't come in a way that was was more polite in a way, kinder. So she didn't feel like she was backing out of her own decision. The one running the conference didn't feel that this uh, speaker had fainted out. She had been gracious and told her not to come. Everybody feels better about it, but it was completely clear. <laughs> And right. so if clear is direct, then... Well, um, it, it took me a no minute when you when you first said, she said it was a good example of direct communication. My brain initially went, yes, it is. Like it took oh, me good. a second to go, oh, wait, no, it <laughs> actually isn't. Yes, um, but, And not and only kinder, but it, it focuses on the rapport building dimension of the conversation, which is something you talk about a lot. Yes, in yes. In terms yes, of yes. the way women tend to communicate versus the way men... Yes. Um, in, yeah. in the book, You Just Don't Understand, I talk about rapport talk and report talk. But report talk can create rapport if you both agree that's the best way to communicate. Right. Uh, and so I think it's so important to keep in mind, this is where the linguistics come in, that communication is a ritual. We don't, we're not dictionaries. We're not walking dictionaries and grammar books. We use language the way other people use it. We say what we have learned over time is the right way to say things. Someone who that's this is where this idea of conversational style comes in. Um, so someone who shares our conversational style shares our idea of how this conversational ritual should go. Someone who doesn't will say it's about you didn't say what you meant, but it's really that they don't share the ritual. Uh, so the part two of that example of directness, <laughs> shortly after that, that uh, happened, I was in the office of a colleague of mine and her phone rang. This was before email and it's been interesting to see how this plays out in email, but the phone rang and I heard her side of the conversation and it was something like this. 
oh, I don't see how I possibly could. I am so overcommitted this term. I'm teaching an overload class. I've got two dissertation students that are finishing up this term. I'm on so many other, there's just no way I can do it. But if you can't find anyone else, of course, I wouldn't let you down. And then she hung up and she looked at me with genuine shock on her face. And she said, I can't believe it. I told him I couldn't do it. And he put me on the committee anyway. (laughs) And so, of course, I pointed out to her, you told him in your style (laughs) that you couldn't do it. But you ended up saying if he really needed you to, you would. And he took you literally. Now, it could be he knew she didn't mean it and just took advantage. That indirectness gives you an opening. But I think it's quite likely that he took, he really believed that she meant if he really needed her, she'd do it. And he really needed her. (laughs) Just as when the sick uh, speaker said, if you really need me (laughs) to come and give my talk, she knew she couldn't say, I really need you. Right, of course. And this this makes me think about what you were saying in the Japanese culture. Someone's point of view is you need to be more direct. And the Japanese students said, well, why can't you learn to listen for indirectness? And it makes me think in in terms of gender, you know, we're hearing a lot these days about women, you need to lean in, you need to demand a seat at the table and speak up more and, you know, all of these kinds of things and, and stop apologizing so much, Right. But in an, in essence, it's sort of like we're saying, women, you need to be more like men. Instead of saying, maybe men need to apologize more. Maybe men te- need to speak less so there's more room for women to speak up. And so it sort of reminds me of that in talking about this like mismatch in styles, that there's not a right or wrong way that one has to be more like the other, but that I think what you're saying is we have to be more aware of these differences and learn how to kind of be open to all of them. Is, is that right? Yes, that's absolutely right. People often will ask me, so what's the best way to talk? And I always <laughs> say what's best in one situation may not be the best in the other, but it's always best to be aware of all these phenomena, all these parameters that affect conversational style so that you can ask, if I'm not having the effect I want, how could I have talked differently to have a different effect? Uh, when you get an impression of what somebody else means, you could stop and ask yourself, could I be getting the wrong impression? Could they have a different conversational style? We're thrilled to be partnered with Jill Stoddard. Her fabulous book, Be Mighty, is offering a book club. And what I'm really excited about in terms of the book club is that sometimes I read books, but then I just leave it there and I never actually apply what the book teaches us. And Jill, I think your book club is an opportunity for our listeners to get a really efficient way to start putting those principles into practice. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's through a company called High Tide, and it's a four-week virtual book club that starts on November 1st. And they're basically bite-sized skills to be able to take what you learn when you read the book and apply it in real life in a really efficient manner. And if you sign up, you get to have two live Q&As with me. That's awesome. And if you go to our sponsorship page on Psychologists Off the Clock, you can get 15% off. I'm glad you mentioned that about apologies. This was one of the most frustrating things to me when my book, Talking from Nine to Five, was published about the workplace. I have a chapter there on apologies. I talk, say a lot about it. And I do make the point that women tend to apologize more than men. I also point out that very often it's not an apology. It's often, I'm sorry that happened. It's taking the other person's experience into account. It's misinterpreted as an apology. So quick example of that, uh, that was reported to me. A teacher had sent a uh, difficult student to the principal. And when she ran into the principal later, he said he had suspended the student. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry. And he said, don't apologize. It's not your fault. She wasn't apologizing. She was saying, I'm sorry the student was suspended. I regret it. I'm sorry that happened. Not an apology. It's it's sort of the way we say I'm sorry when someone tells us they've lost someone. You know, oh, my grandfather died. Oh, I'm so sorry. And in that context, we all seem to know that the person is not saying this was my fault and I'm apologizing for for this fact. But in other contexts, 
absolutely we're not getting that yeah no that's that's absolutely right but in the workplace often we do take it to mean we miss the fact that in that context it could be an expression of condolences expression of uh, regret and take it as an apology but also I never say in that book, women should apologize less for the reason you just gave, the double bind. A double bind is worse than a double standard. Double standard means women are judged by a different standard, but they can still meet that standard. They have to work twice as hard. They have to be twice as good, but they can meet that standard. A double bind is a situation where you have two sets of requirements and anything you do to fulfill one violates the other. In the workplace, our expectations for how a person in authority should speak is opposed to our expectations of how a woman should speak. So if she fulfills expectations for how a woman should speak, she's lacking in confidence, lacking in competence. If she talks in a way that uh, a manager or a person in authority is expected to speak, she's too aggressive, People just don't like her. And that certainly comes up all the time in public life. It's extremely difficult for women in public life to be, think of women on the campaign trail, to be forceful, talk about what they've done, show emotion, often anger at things that are happening that they don't uh, think are good. All those things are unacceptable in a woman. So I never said in the book that women should stop apologizing. In fact, one very specific example, a woman told me when she was first promoted, she talked in the way the previous person who had held that position talked. And he happened to be a guy. And and kind of what they tell people often in um, positions of authority, never apologize, never explain. And she was getting a very bad reaction. And she found that when she began to apologize more, she got a better reaction oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) This is uh, because people liked her more. This is what they expected from a woman. So I'm not giving advice either way. I'm saying you have to be cautious. You have to be, have antenna for the effects of the ways you're speaking and consider changing how you're speaking if you feel comfortable doing so. It's extremely frustrating that it's always women who are asked to change. It it is. is My last interview was with Alicia Menendez, who wrote the book, The Likeability Trap. So I don't know if you're familiar with that, but the entire book is about exactly this double bind that you're talking about and how you know, often the advice is for women to change when in reality, you know, this is a systemic and institutional issue. But what you're saying is that, you know, the way we choose to behave is really context sensitive. And in certain contexts, it is like survival to do what you need to do, like in the workplace, and sort of picking and choosing when you jump in or fight the fight, if you will. So yeah, yeah, it's tricky. By the way, the same is true for women in the positions of power, because they also run into this. When I wrote Talking from 9 to 5, I spent a significant amount of time in several large corporations. And every department where I was introduced, they told me, and this is our highest ranking woman. She's, She's got a soft touch. This is our highest ranking woman. She's kind of aggressive, but she's really good. There was always a statement about is she aggressive or is she not? Is she, does she have a light touch or not? That wasn't the case with guys. If I was introduced to a guy who was high up, you know, this is John. He has this department. That that judgment is always over women's heads. And we know that there's that word that starts with B, which is always hovering somewhere over our shoulder. Right. And, and the judgment also, is about how they are, not about what they do. And that's the other thing that is not, you know, men are men are not judged for their personality and how they are and the way they say things or how they look. They're judged for what they do. And, you know, for women, it's both. Yeah, I wouldn't be that absolute about it. I mean, certainly if there are aspects of men's personality that attract attention, that might be the case. But it isn't necessarily the case for all guys. Right. And there's men- a wider berth for what's acceptable. Yeah. And there's always that question hovering over the shoulders um, of women. So the quick example I was going to give the power dynamic, a woman who owned a bookstore told me 
she had a problem with her the manager and had to have a talk with him. And it turned out she felt she had asked him to do something that he had said he would do and then he didn't do it. Uh, and they traced it to a conversation where she had said to him something like, the bookkeeper needs help with the billing. How would you feel about helping her out? And he said, fine. By which he meant, I'll think about how I would feel about helping her out. <laughs> And he decided that he had something more important to do, and so he didn't do it. He didn't hear it as, I am telling you to go help the bookkeeper with the billing. So I was fascinated by that. And then maybe a month or so later, I was talking to her and I said, how are things with the manager? And she said, fine, we don't have those problems anymore. And I said, have you changed your way of telling him to do things? And she said, no, I talk the same way, but now he knows how I mean it. <laughs> and I love that because she was the owner. Right. So if he didn't adjust to how she meant what she said, she could fire him. So definitely the power dynamic plays in there. But it's not the whole story. I mean, there are definitely, I encountered many, many examples where women were the authorities and yet felt that they had to talk closer to the way women were expected to talk in order to get the work done. One another example, I actually made a training video called Talking Nine to Five. And in there, I this video that just got picked up with the film crew that was uh, recording in various companies. They were in Minnesota. So this was in Minneapolis. And you see this woman talking to a guy and she's being so tentative. And at one point she says, do you think you could get that done today so we could send that out to them? And you hear him off the screen say, nope. And the audience often laughs. And, well, it turns out, I talked to her afterwards. It turns out he did end up doing it. And she said they were to PR firm. She was the manager. He was the art director. And she didn't think of it as gender. She said these arty types are very prickly, and you have to handle them with kid gloves. They always want more time. The artists always want more time. But I need to get the work out of them so we can give it to the client. And she said she has learned over time that she gets a better response. He's more likely to come around if she starts in that tentative way. Hmm. And she didn't think it had to do with her gender, but I would be surprised if it wasn't, at least in part, that he reacted more positively when she talked in a way that he felt he just expected. Maybe he just felt better feeling that he had a little more volition in it. So, so much of this, as we were saying before, sounds like an issue of match. And I'm thinking about the imbalance of responsibilities in heterosexual relationships with household duties and childcare and homeschooling in this current situation that we're in. And it seems like in terms of that, in terms of how we're negotiating our behavior in the pandemic, when like some people are very strict about masks and social distancing and other people or maybe less so, you know, it seems to me that communication is more important than it has maybe ever been. And that if we're going to be navigating these difficult conversations, one of the things that we need to be listening for is different conversational style. And either calling that out, you know, by saying, well, I think what you're saying is this, or I think what you want is this, or trying to match it if we are sensitive enough to be picking it up. Whereas what I think happens is people either avoid having the conversation altogether, they begin the conversation, and when there is that mismatch, they get frustrated and just cut it off. But like not pushing forward to the point of trying to come up with a mutually beneficial resolution. Like we don't have to agree about having the same rules on masks and social distancing, but we have to find a way to come together if we're going to hang out as friends or if a workplace is asking staff to return who aren't feeling safe or uh, with holidays approaching and some family members wanting to fly to visit one another and others lacking that comfort level. You know, these are all things that require really difficult conversations. And what I'm hearing you say is that you know, conversational style is going to be critically important in how well those conversations go, like in terms of how productive they end up being. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and 
What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We have to also start from the assumption that everybody's nerves are raw. Yeah. Everybody's under pressure. Everybody is feeling high levels of anxiety, fear. Everybody is is experiencing, it was Michelle Obama who put it this way, a low level of depression. Because yeah. we're all in, in this bizarre situation and getting scarier and bizarrier by the minute. So keep that in mind. If something that somebody else says rubs you the wrong way, maybe stop for a moment and ask whether you also might be occasionally talking in ways that might rub others the wrong way because of this pressure that we're all under. Uh, second thing I would say is meta-communicate. Talk about the communication. So if you feel that you've interpreted as somebody something somebody said in a way that is upsetting to you, just check that that really is how they meant it. It would be helpful more often to say to somebody, well, how could I have said that differently for you to have heard it differently? Is there something about the way I said it that puts you over the edge? And be open to them telling you <laughs> what it was yes, about the way right. you said it that puts them over the edge and consider stopping for a moment and maybe trying to say the same thing in a slightly different way. And it's really important. I mean, this is, psychologists say this all the time. Talk as much as possible in terms of what things make you feel <laughs> rather than what's wrong about what they said <laughs> or right. did. <laughs> the I statements instead of the yes. statements. You know, we talk so much about the meanings of words and conversation, but when you have an ongoing relationship, the meaning of everything you say comes partly from everything you said before. Mm. And that we all bring that to the current conversation. And so just being aware of that can be very helpful too, to step back and ask, did he really say that? Did she really say that? Or am I assuming it because of conversations we've had before? Be very careful of email. I think email is an extremely mixed blessing. Or so text. often I do it myself all the time. A little voice is saying in my head, don't do this on email. <laughs> it's not a good idea. But I'm in a hurry. I have so many other things to do. You dash off an email. It's satisfying. You've gotten it done. Also, you've had the chance to express your side of it. <laughs> but often you get carried away when if you were had the person in front of you and they were to tell you their perspective sooner, <laughs> you wouldn't keep going in that direction. Right. And I think the same thing happens with text messaging too. It's so, it's so much emotionally easier to shoot off a text than it is to have a one-on-one conversation, but there's so much space for misinterpretation or assumptions about tone. Right. Exactly. People have very different ideas about what's appropriate to say, what the the opportunities for misunderstanding are just enormous when it's written language. You don't have tone of voice. You don't have facial expression. You don't know what mood the person is in when they're getting it, reading it. You may be going off on a text message. That person may feel this is not a right appropriate topic for a text message. So yeah, if, if it's a serious thing, if it's an important thing, it might be worth setting a time to have a voice-to-voice conversation. And, you know, I think this too can become context sensitive because I'm thinking about a couple different times where I thought, you know, this is really a conversation that should happen verbally, not over email. I'm thinking of three separate situations that became very serious where I trusted that what happened in that verbal conversation would be honored by both sides, but because it wasn't documented, 
it became a problem. And what actually my dad, who's an entrepreneur, he gave me the suggestion, have the conversation. But then after the conversation, follow up with an email saying, here's what we discussed. Here's what we agreed to. If I don't hear from you by this time, I'll assume we're in agreement. So you're you're kind of you know, killing two birds with, with one stone, which I think is excellent advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a great advice. You're getting the advantages of both. You have the conversation to negotiate, making a decision, and then you have the written form to make sure you both agree on where you're ending up. Right. And that email could reveal that what one or the other of you was assuming the other person meant was inaccurate, right? Like what you were saying at the beginning of this conversation is I thought I was being completely direct when in reality, this was indirect and we're (laughs) hearing different things. So it it kind of solves that problem, hopefully, as well. Yeah. Yeah. So this past April, the New York Times published an article that was, it was in the, in her words section titled, it's not just you in online meetings, many women can't get a word in edgewise. And this relates to the pandemic and working from home and maybe even schooling from home. And, you know, the article starts by talking about some of the universal challenges that we've all experienced working from home and being online. And in fact, it may be the case that in this very episode, people will hear my son screaming in the background because he's usually in the background of all of my episodes in some way, shape or form. (laughs) But, you know, the article goes on to say that remote meetings are also really highlighting how difficult it is for women to be heard in group meetings. And you're quoted in that article and you note that online, the gender imbalances are really amplified and that it it boils down to these gender differences in, in conversational style and conversational conventions. So talk to me a little bit about this and how we understand this specifically when it comes to, you know, Zoom platforms and working remotely and meeting online versus in person. Yeah, this is something that has been disappointing and surprising about online communication. I remember when these kinds of meetings first became possible, goes back quite a few years. I was invited by the director of some division at a major corporation to come and talk to them. And they were just initiating these kinds of meetings at the time. It would have been, I don't remember what the platform was, but it was very early on. And they were so optimistic They knew that it was a problem. Women weren't getting heard at meetings. In fact, at one point, the possible topic for my book, which ended up being called Talking from 9 to 5, a possible title was, didn't I just say that? Because it was such a common experience of women that they said something at a meeting and it was ignored. And then later, a guy says the same thing and suddenly it's a great idea, but now it's his idea. Um, and people really thought this is so great. It was only, it was not a, a visual platform. It was just typed words. And so they felt people won't see if it's a woman or a man. So they'll listen to them both equally. Uh, that inequality won't surface. And it turned out that it did. Big disappointment. And part of it was the way that the women and men were speaking, that men tended to take more time take up more space, say things with more definiteness, not start with disclaimers like, I don't know if you've thought of this, but this may not really be a good idea. But And it's the kind of thing, it's so stereotypical. It, it's easy to say, oh, you're just doing stereotypes here. But then research finds that it still is the case. Women are still often starting that way. Other women tend to they don't really listen to it. They just block it out. We don't hear that. We just know that's ritual. Again, conversational ritual. We realize, oh yeah, that's just the way she's starting. And then you listen to what's said. But those who don't start that way, take it literally. I guess she's not sure. I guess she doesn't really have that much basis for what she's saying. And they draw conclusions based, and not just about what she's saying, but the kind of person she is, which is even more damaging to women. So when all these meetings started going online with Zoom, there was the same optimism. Everybody's going to have a chance to get heard. And and some women have reported that they do find it easier, but many say that they don't. And, and the research that was reported in that article indicated that there is evidence that women are uh, still having trouble getting heard. It seems like part of it is you don't want to interrupt 
And so you're waiting for the pause and that pause never comes. Sometimes the chat box can be helpful. You type things in the chat box and so you get it out there. But sometimes what's in the chat box is ignored because who has time to read the chat box? In the book, Talking from 9 to 5, I, I talk about a Japanese tradition, which was called Nemawashi. And I was told this by a Japanese woman who wrote a book about comparing Japanese and American communication style. Her name is Haru Yamada. And she writes about how in Japanese culture, business culture too, you don't try to make a decision in a meeting because you know not everybody is going to be able to say what they think at the meeting. So the person who has the power talks individually to each person privately, gets a sense of what everybody thinks, where everybody is. And then the meeting is a way to get everybody's buy-in and agreement on the path forward. It's time-consuming, but it, it certainly would be a better way to make decisions if you have the time to do that. And uh, women always do better if they're given a platform than if they have to claim the platform Mm -hmm. because of that double bind. Yeah. And I think you had mentioned, I don't remember if it was this article or another one, but you talked a little bit about how this is also affecting kids and teens and young adults who are now schooling online. And there was a certain expectation that the kind of greater anonymity would help kids to talk more, but the opposite was found. Am I, am I getting that right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I I think we talked about how I I taught, I taught on through zoom in the spring term as I'm, I'm not teaching this term, but I did last term. And many of the students in the class, I had about 16 students in the class. It's always a challenge to us teachers getting the quiet students to talk. And many of us thought, great, (laughs) this is going to make it easier for the quiet students to talk. And it didn't. Very often, the quiet students found it even more intimidating to talk with all these faces staring out out at you. Uh, And uh, you kind of feel like you're being stared down by everybody. And the thought that all these faces are going to be staring you down if you talk makes it even harder. And I think I read somewhere, too, that the having your own face staring back at you yes, is something yes. that's become an obstacle for people. They become more self-conscious when they can see themselves even oh, absolutely. more so than other people. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. There is a feature, you know, where you can make yourself invisible, and it's probably a, a good one to try to use sometimes. Uh, but, yeah, that, that you're facing, looking at yourself the whole time. And when in, in real interaction face-to-face... You don't stare at people nonstop. You glance at them, you glance at other people, you glance around the room. But with Zoom, you're staring the whole time at this screen, which is part of, I think, why it's so exhausting. Another one thing that my students did help me understand, and maybe people can use this in running meetings, the one function that they told me worked even better through Zoom than it did in person. I frequently broke the class into small groups because that way everybody could participate. And they said that the small groups worked even better as breakout rooms on Zoom because they didn't get distracted by hearing the other people in the other groups. Uh, They they could really concentrate on the small group. And three seemed to be the best number. That's good to know. I don't teach myself anymore. I did for a long time, but I do online webinars and things like that, and I'm still experimenting with some of these different modalities. So it's it's great when, you know, research and experience can really lend a voice to how, how best to, to do this to get over some of these obstacles. So. Well, I realize we are coming close to the end of our time. So I want to make sure we take a minute. So you've just published a new book, and I believe this is your 26th book, right? On top of all the other countless articles and things you've done. And this one is, as you had mentioned earlier, totally different from any of the ones you've written before. So tell us a little bit about this book and why you decided to write one that's so different from everything you've been doing. Yes, thank you for asking. This book is about my father. All my other books are based on my area of expertise, language, how language affects uh, human relationships. This book is called Finding My Father, his century-long journey from World War I Warsaw and my quest to follow. Why did I want to write a book about my father? And it took me so long to write. Sometimes I think it took me 
as long as it took me to write all the others put together. <laughs> I first got the idea back in the 80s. I got very serious about it in the 90s, uh, then put it aside. I wrote a first draft around 2012. <laughs> and now here it is coming out in a pandemic, <laughs> as it happens. Why did I want to write it? I can answer really on two levels and maybe a bit of a third. The personal and the historical. The personal, I adored my father. When I was a kid, though, he was never home. He was at work, and he was also very active in politics, so he was either doing his political work or, or his paid work. And I'm the youngest of three sisters, so even if he was home, he didn't have a whole lot of time to spend just with me. <laughs> um, I was kind of envious that my oldest sister had him to herself for six whole years before the next <laughs> one was born. I never had him to myself. And so after he retired, he himself developed a real interest, passion for talking about his past. He was born into a Hasidic family in Warsaw in 1908. So he lived through World War I in Warsaw, came to the United States when he was 12 in 1920. And he loved talking about his past, and I loved listening, and suddenly I had this opportunity to spend all this time with him and uh, and really get to know him in a way that I otherwise wouldn't have had the chance. So it was, in a way, filling up that hole, you know, to not be too dramatic about it, this hole in my heart that I had been missing him so much. But as he talked, I realized that this was, this was an account of the 20th century. He lived to be 98 from 1908 to 2006, and he was completely with it until the end. So it was World War I in Warsaw, this Hasidic community of Warsaw, which he remembered in astonishing detail. He could talk endlessly about what life was like, who the people were, what their relationships were. Then he comes to the United States in 1920, which is the tail end of the massive influx of East European Jews to the United States, as well as the um, great wave of Italians, Greeks, and other Southern and uh, Eastern Europeans to the United States. And I read um, that you, you have, not only do you have recordings of him talking about his whole life and history, but that you also found journals. Is that right? Yes. That he had written? I mean, what a gift all of this is. <laughs> yeah, and I don't father, think it's over dramatic to say it's filling a hole. I mean, I, I just get the sense it's like soul nourishing to go through this process. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for putting it that way. Absolutely right. And and since I'm a scholar, you know, and a researcher, I love going through documents. He left me mountains, mountains. I think he saved every letter he got, copies of many of the letters he wrote. He has letters his mother wrote and got, letters his aunt wrote and got. He must have he must have just collected told everybody, if you don't want them, I'll take them. And yeah, he gave me journals that he kept before he married. And then this is the other big dra dramatic thing. He and my mother both made reference to a woman he might have married instead of my mother. They referred to her as my mother's rival. And he commented <laughs> at one point that uh, he had saved her letters but didn't know where they were. So I, of course, got fascinated. If I could read these letters, maybe I could figure out what his relationship with her was like. Why did he marry my mother and not her? He actually said at one point, your mother wasn't my girlfriend. Helen was my girlfriend. Well, you know, so what did that mean? What were their different relationships? Well, I, I found the letters. He told me to keep them. <laughs> and he also, it turned out, had kept copies of many of his letters to her. Wow. So I did have a picture of their relationship. And I have a a long chapter on that. Many people tell me it's their favorite chapter. Wow. It's kind well, of and to think that, that, you know, for you to think if this had gone a different way, you never would have existed. Well, that is what is so funny, you know, magical thinking, maybe all thinking is magical thinking. Mm. I definitely came up, you know, sort of was veering toward the idea that she would, my father should have married her and her letters wow. are beautiful. And I fell in love with her reading the letters the fact that that would mean I didn't exist didn't really figure in it. <laughs> and I had to really ask myself, why am I rooting for her? And what does this represent to me? Uh, uh, well, it sounds great. wonderful. And I have already downloaded it myself to my e-reader. So I, I love reading memoir. And I also, I appreciate you saying how long it took you to write yours, because then I feel like I, I still have time to get through my own. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Tannen, so much for joining us. This was such a treat. I just, I find this incredibly fascinating and I appreciate everything that you have given to the world in this really accessible way. A lot of things that happen in academia never reach most of the people who could benefit from learning about it. So I think people who are able to translate that really important scientific knowledge for the the general public have a true gift. So thank you for sharing it with us. And I really appreciate you being here. Well, thank you so much. It's been really a pleasure talking to you. And thank you for all the nice things you said and for a great conversation. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, and our interns, Katie Rothfelder and Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.